Well, good morning. <clears throat> if I haven't met you, my name is Fritz, and I'm one of the pastors here. I like to remind Murray all the time I'm the head pastor. Just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, I'm actually, uh, I'll go ahead and get this out of the way. As many of you know, my wife and I just returned from Nebraska. We didn't want to return uh, because we were with our new granddaughter, our first grandbaby, and for those of you who have been there, done that, raise your hand for just a second. I get you now. I get you. Beautiful, beautiful. So we're, um, this will actually lead into the text that we're looking at this morning, but we're in John 8, if you have a Bible. Uh, but I was able to be there about <clears throat> four or five days, and the last morning, uh, much like my dad would do, I was up at the crack of dawn, and we were going to get out of there. And I didn't think I was going to get to see my daughter that morning or my granddaughter. And I'm getting ready, literally loading stuff in the car. And I come back in and my daughter had been nursing our granddaughter. And she comes out of her room and she looks at me and says, Dad, I've got to go back. And would you hold Charlie for a minute? And I thought, would I hold Charlie? But of course, I would hold this dear child. And as we think about the wonder of Advent, and thank you to those who put up the tree and decorated in here, it's beautiful. Why do we do all of this? Why do we get excited every year? Because we know that little child's going to grow up and die one day, like the rest of us. Why do we marvel at small children? Why do we marvel? Because we have a God that became a small child and came in this world to save it, to save us, and to give us life. We have been looking at the Gospel of John, and we've been reminded over and over that John isn't making us guess at what his purpose is with this book. He tells us what his purpose is in John 21. He said, it is so that you may believe, if you don't believe in Jesus or the Bible, here is your chance to entertain this, to think about it, to consider what Jesus said and did, not what you heard he said or did, or what your professor told you, but actually hear it from the Bible and to believe for the first time or to continue to believe because as believers we get discouraged, we get down, sometimes we have unbelief and we entertain doubt and we sort of slip away from God and God says, I want you to come back and I want you to believe in this baby again. And by believing, you will have life. And what he means by life is eternal life that bleeds back into the present that right now you can enjoy God. And God can enjoy you. Today we're going to see that through a sinful, shameful, and shamed woman standing before the God of the universe without a speck of condemnation. And we're also going to see a mob of religious people leave with their shame and their sin and their condemnation and they don't have life and she has it. So read with me and again before I read this if you have questions about this text you have footnotes 
If you are a member here or a regular attender and you're not on the email list, you're missing some things. And one of the things that you're missing is a weekly writing that I put out. And sometimes I get ahead of the passage we're going to preach or I come back or it's just a a short one-page devotional. But in that, I explained why I am preaching this text today. And so you can look at that. I won't get into all of that today. But look at John chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. God, as Jeffrey prayed, we come this morning praying that you, the Holy Spirit, would do as you promised to remind us of the things that Jesus said and did, not just as moral examples, but as a substitute in our place for sinners, for sin, that he might be exalted today and that we might be drawn to him and made like him. Help us to think Biblically, Lord, and not according to the idols of the world or the idols of our own hearts and all the crazy thoughts that come in and go out. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week, uh, not because of anything I actually planned, just sort of how my week fell out, I ended up having lunch with five lawyers Uh, Two on one day from our church, and I learned some things about the legal system. And three that actually work across the street. And in that conversation, I learned of a term that lawyers use. It's a legal term, and it's called judgment proof. Now, I Googled it because they explained it in legal terms, and it went, and I read it, and it was like, But I just love the phrase. It's basically a position legally where you are no longer 
under judgment. You can't be judged and condemned. Now all the lawyers here are going to correct me later on that. But just go with this. It's a great phrase. It's what this text is about. But here's the problem. Jesus is saying that through my coming into this world, you can be judgment proof. You can be without condemnation. And we like that. But there's a problem. For some of us, we don't think we deserve any condemnation. We think, compared to other people, we're pretty good. You need ears to hear the gospel today. For others of us, we know that we have guilt and sin, and we know that there's condemnation of some sort, and we live with judges inside of us. The Bible calls that your conscience. Social sciences and psychology call it the conscience. It accuses you, and it defends you. Sometimes it defends you, and it's right. Sometimes it's wrong, and that can be an internal battle of judgment all the time. And then everyone else around you has that conscience, right? And their conscience is accusing them and defending them. And they might even group up and accuse you just for the fun of it. We call that middle school. Actually, when my kids went to middle school, I learned that I could no longer go to lunch with them. And so I would always tease them and say, okay, just what are the rules of cool for middle school? What gets me in? Well, you can't wear that. See, we've got rules and judgments all over us, all up on us in colloquial language and inside of us. And the Bible says, good, you should, you should deal with that. You should recognize that. I have sent my son into this world to deal with that for you so that you in him can be without condemnation, judgment proof. Today we're going to see, like the, like the wonder of holding that beautiful baby, for some of us we have lost that wonder with God. The power of the gospel, Paul calls it, the joy of our salvation, because we forget the good verdict over us. That our standing with God in Christ is no condemnation. We're going to look at this under three headings. I want to give credit to a commentator that I used this week. I worked up this sermon, had this great little outline, and then I looked at his and I went, that's a lot better. And I've been praying for clarity, and I think this is better. So we're going to use his outline, and the first is the setup. So we indeed begin with sort of a scene of judgment, don't we? You see it here in the text. It's, it's a trial of sorts. A group of people are bringing a woman accused of major violations of the Torah that have hurt herself, have hurt other people, have not glorified God. And again, this is alleged, but if it's true, she is a covenant breaker. And the, the summary question is this, what is Jesus going to do with her? What does Jesus do with sin? What does Jesus do with sinners? What does Jesus do with your sin and my sin? Look at verse 2. 
Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. We have seen this over and over with Jesus. At one level, in our day and age, you could say that Jesus had an attractional ministry. The power of what he taught and the authority and the signs and wonders that he did brought people to him. And they listened to him. They were attracted to him. They were attracted to his teaching. And it's the same here in verse 2. Then verses 3 through 6, you have a group of religious leaders that are attempting to set up Jesus. And we've seen it before where they come to Jesus to test him. But this is more. They're doing more than just trying to test him or trip him up. They're doing it with a purpose, and that person or that purpose is that he would be charged, that he would get himself incriminated, that something he would say would cause him to be condemned by the authorities. You have two groups of people. If you've been around the church or you know your Bible, you know these people. They're scribes and Pharisees. The scribes were what we also call the teachers of the law. They were, in their terms, lawyers. They were ethicists. They were theologians. They were those who did the catechizing in the church, so to speak. They were the jurists. They would help you understand the law and, and interpretation and its application, right? The Pharisees were always right there with them, and there was some overlap here. But they, again, in our terms, were conservative, Bible-believing, value-centered. We believe in miracles in the afterlife. Sound like Protestants, Presbyterians, to be honest. They were the keepers of the faith. They didn't want to give in to the corrupt government and the influences of the world. And look at verse 3. They're bringing a woman to Jesus, and it is very clear that they are up to no good. How do we know that? Just a few things. Verse 5. They are using the Old Testament for their own ends. Just like when the, they came to Jesus about divorce. Hey, God gave man a certificate of divorce, so we're going to divorce women. And what that was all about is the same sort of thing here. In the Old Testament, God said, divorce is a bad thing, you should be faithful to your marriage, etc., etc. We all get that. But because you're sinners and because you're going to be selfish, some of you are going to say, I'm going this way. That does not mean if you're divorced, you're in some special category of sin. There are biblical reasons to get divorced. But these people weren't doing that. They were looking for excuses to get out of commitments. And they were using the Bible to say, look at this, see, God said I could. And that's the same thing that is going on here. They're using the Old Testament for their ends. For example, they bring the woman, but if you actually read the Old Testament, it says bring the woman and the what? Her dog? The man. Where's the man? Maybe he's on the run, probably playing basketball or something. Where are the witnesses? You've heard it said, but Jesus says, read your Bibles. Where are the two or three witnesses? Actually, the ones that are supposed to 
pick up the stone first. Technically, stoning was only in the case of a betrothed woman and man. Other adultery sins were punishable by death, but did not specify stoning. You see what they're doing here? They're just like, look, I've got lots of secular friends in the biking world, and they always come to me with these questions about the Old Testament. Yeah, well, I'm not a Christian because. And I'm like, wait a minute, can we just talk about, no, no, let's talk about something else now. (sighs) But notice also that they're shaming her. You just see the picture. It's like they're just dragging her, and literally it says they put her in the midst of them. You ever been shamed before? Where all eyes are on you and your sin? But more importantly, verse 6, they're coming after Jesus. Look at what it says. They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. See, it is clear that this is not so much a trial of her sin. It's God on trial. They want to put Jesus on trial. They want Jesus to condemn himself. They don't understand that that is the exact reason that Jesus came into the world. To be condemned for our sin. That's why he came. To take our guilt and our sin. What is the actual dilemma that they are bringing up? And you may see this differently, that's fine. But after meditating on this for a week and thinking about it, it's really the question is, what is God going to do with sin? How does Jesus think about a sinful person? What does he think about stoning? What does he think about some of those weird Old Testament laws? What's he going to do with this sinner? Is God hard on sin? Is he soft on sin? That's the question behind the question. This person is caught in sin and it's punishable by death. Jesus, what say ye? Do you see it? It's a setup. They're trying to get Jesus condemned. Visiting my son-in-law last week, we went out for dinner with a couple of his young friends. One was an assistant pastor there at the church and this other young, I would call him a zealot. He's like right out of the Bible. I mean, as soon as we sit down, hey, I got two pastors here. Can I ask a question? I was like, uh, sure. And he says, you know, I've been thinking about the American Revolution. Do you think that was biblically justified? I was like, uh, well, really hadn't. You know, and here's the thing. Let's, 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 for the next hour, we could talk about that. We could write books about that. We could have disagreement. That is not what the Bible's about. The Bible is about God taking away sin. And really, as we listen to him, and the other pastor was great, he just asked questions. And what I realized he was saying is, I don't like our government. When do I have the right to take up arms and rebel against them? In other words, he was saying, this is what I want to do with sin, their sin. Jesus has come into the world to take away our sin. See, they didn't understand that the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to Jesus. 
They didn't understand that the lambs in the Old Testament pointed to the Lamb of God. They didn't understand that the scapegoat running off into the wilderness with our sin and guilt on him was pointing to Jesus running off with your guilt and sin. And so when we don't understand that, we have to deal with our sin. And one way we have to deal with our we do that is we self-justify with all these little measurements and we categorically put other people in little pockets and they're not meeting our laws. And that's exactly what these gentlemen are doing. They don't understand Jesus and sin. Secondly, the challenge. What is Jesus' response? It's, let's admit it, a little strange. When I first looked at this, I was like, I'm not going to preach that passage because I have no idea what he's doing writing in the dirt. But he's writing in the dirt. He leans down and he writes on the ground. And Jesus did these sorts of things. We take mud and, you know, saliva. And you're like, what's that all about? There's lots of ideas out there. But one of the better ones actually agreed with the first thought I had when I read this. Growing up in a small town, you'd go to these hardware stores or country stores. And outside, there'd be an elderly man, maybe a former farmer. He's sitting on a bucket and he's chewing tobacco and he's whittling, right? Just looking at us, whittling, whittling, whittling. And being goofy youth that we were, we might say something dishonoring or disrespectful or just goofy. And the man would look up and he would go back to his whittling. That may be what Jesus is doing here. He may be saying, I'm not dignifying your question. Really, guys, this woman has dehumanized herself through her sin, and you're going to further dehumanize her by using the Old Testament to heap shame on her. I don't play that. Maybe what he's doing. Regardless, the result is that there is a, a delay. Do you see it? Verse 7. And it further shows their sinister motives. What do they do? They persist. They continue to ask him, what are you going to do with her sin? What are you going to do with this sinner? They want to know, will Jesus agree with their interpretation in the Old Testament that she must be stoned? Again, they're missing that Jesus came to be condemned for sin and they're trying to handle sin and judgment and justice the best they know how. Verse 7, Jesus' response, he stands up again and he says this. And listen how measured and specific this is. Let him who is without sin among you. Now you're in that group and you're self-justifying and you think well of yourself, especially compared to her. And all of a sudden, someone with authority in the middle of that awkward situation looks at your group and says, all right, I want... One of you, right here in this little group, who is without sin, to get up, pick up the first stone, and throw it at her. Do you really believe in the severity that you're talking about? That that's what sinners deserve? And are you willing to do that? 
is very, very pointed. See, they have created this social structure where they are without sin compared to her. They would never say that, and we would never say that. But listen to how we talk. Listen to yourself sometimes. Listen to your pastor sometimes. It's so easy to categorically have these groups where we are always the good guy, we are always the hero, or we're the victim. The interesting thing here, he quotes Deuteronomy 13. Because Jesus did believe the Bible. He did believe the Old Testament. But Deuteronomy 13 doesn't deal with adultery between a man and a woman. But it actually deals with adultery between us and God. What Deuteronomy 13 requires stoning for is false teachers who lead God's people into spiritual adultery. You see that? False teachers, books, classes, podcasts, preachers, any false teaching that leads you away from God coming into this world to die for sin and to show favor and grace and no condemnation to the church and offer that to the world, anything that undermines that, that deserves stoning. Ugh. That's why Paul would get so serious with false teachers. He says, you're coming in the church and you're undermining the gospel of grace by adding to Jesus' work or taking away from it, saying it's not enough, or just be good people. Notice that Jesus honors the Bible. Nowhere does he dispute it. He points to it. He honors justice, sin, not honors it, but he believes in the truth of it. He believes that adultery is a sin. But notice this, he honors something more important, more honorable. He's honoring something that actually comes from the Bible that all of the Bible is pointing to. And that is the forgiveness and the mercy that is found in him that trumps judgment that will actually restore her dignity. See, he doesn't want any of us living in sin and shame. He wants to rehumanize us. Do you realize that's what the law, this is some of the conversation with the, the lawyers here. We were talking about how the commandments given by God were the most human way of loving God and loving others. They're when you're at your most human Think about a marriage where the couple's actually loving and enjoying each other. They're the most human, and they're not cheating on each other. And so he is saying, I want to make you human again. I want to restore the image of God that adultery and spiritual adultery has broken. How do you know this? Look at verse 8. This is fascinating. What does he do with the religious leader's shame? I think this is the best explanation of why he wrote in the ground. And I didn't come up with this. This was from a commentator I was reading. Notice the timing of it. He did it again. As they heard it, they went away one by one. So they have this response from Jesus that definitely 
throws them for a loop. They realize we're with sin. We cannot pronounce judgment on her. And instead of looking to Jesus and going, are you the fulfillment of the Old Testament? What do they do? They take their sin, they take their guilt, they take their shame, and they walk away. And what does Jesus do? He writes in the ground. Why? This commentator said in both instances, maybe what he is doing is he is calling attention to himself and not to the woman in the first case and not to the religious leaders. That may sound a little bit like a stretch. I'm not sure. But I will say this. What he is doing is he is saying, I'm not going to shame the religious leaders that are walking away with their shame. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn it and to shame it. He came to save. And these leaders would rather walk away apart from Jesus with their shame, with their sin, and with their guilt. In other words, under judgment. Let me try to illustrate this terrible position to be in if you're not a Christian. I was talking to somebody this week about Lance Armstrong. I was not paying attention to the Tour de France and all those things. This guy won seven of the greatest cycling races ever. Seven. And you know how he won them? By cheating. Now, you might think after the first one, he'd be like, all right, I won it by cheating. I really didn't win it, so this time I'm going to try. No, I'm going to cheat again. And maybe after the second year, maybe I should make this a level playing field. No, I'm going to cheat again seven times. And every time when they would ask him, are you doping? Are you cheating? Nope, I'm doing it all right. Even when he got busted, even when he got busted, clearly guilty, he would never fully admit it. Why? Because what he is doing is he's saying, I would rather have my apparent victory and my self-justification, which really is just all a sham. There's this sad picture of him laying on the couch at his house and he's got all seven of his jerseys up behind him in picture frames. And it's just sad. How about us? Jesus is saying to us, would you rather, and this is the Christian message if you're not a Christian, would you rather walk away with your sin, your guilt, and your shame apart from Jesus? Or, like what we finished with, would you rather stand before Jesus? Look at verses 9 through 11 what we're calling the denouement. Look again at verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. You can kind of feel the tension here. The tension further increases in verse 10 when Jesus stands up. And here it comes. What's Jesus going to say? What's Jesus going to do? How is He going to respond to her sin and her shame? Listen to what He says. He says, woman. 
again, that is not uh, a demeaning term. It's either a dignifying and endearing way of recognizing her or it's simply unadorning. It's just kind of normal. In other words, he's not calling attention to her if she's in some category of adulterer. You see that? So even his first word begins to redignify her. And then secondly, further redignifying her, he asks an informative question. He invites her just like he did in, in John chapter 4, where he invites the Samaritan woman to answer questions and to dialogue with him, to participate in whatever is going on here, right? Where are they? Has no one condemned you? Look at verse 11, her response. Sir or Lord, no one. That is actually one word. Uh, there's no, really no way for us to get at it, but it would be something like, Lord, nobody. Does anyone, where, where are your condemners now, sir? Nada. They don't exist. They've all left. You know, you've heard the phrase, preach the gospel to yourself. It's like Jesus is giving her an opportunity to preach the gospel to herself. Sweetheart, where's the condemnation? Fritz, you feel condemned. You hear voices of condemnation. What saith the Lord? Look at verse 11. This is what God says. First of all, he says, neither do I condemn you. Note, he doesn't say she hasn't sinned. He doesn't say justice is bad. He says, you were not condemned by God for your sin. There is there now no condemn, therefore no condemnation for you, woman caught in adultery. You are literally, and you, John wants you to see the picture here. I actually think it belongs in Luke. But for our purposes, John wants you to see this picture of this woman who is busted with her sin, shamed for it, now standing before the Lord of the universe, the judge of all the earth. And she is absolutely safe and secure. She is free from condemnation. She has total amnesty. She is judgment proof. The Bible teaches that in the second coming, Jesus, in fact, will come to judge the earth. But his first coming, he makes clear in John 3, I have not come to condemn, but to save. In fact, as we understand the gospel, he came to be condemned for her sin and for our sin. He came to take away the attention on us and put it on Him. He came and actually said and did things that were worthy of stoning that later in the chapter they pick up stones to stone Him and to condemn Him according to their law, but they don't understand that God will condemn Him according to His law for us so that we can hear the words without sin. If 
you ask my wife, is Fritz Games without sin? I know what she would say. And you know what she would say. But do you know that legally, before God and positionally, standing before the Lord, do you know what He says? Yeah, 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 in this life. Yeah, I get it. That's why I'm sanctifying you. But this is what I declare over you, Fritz. And this is the only thing that will free you from your sin. No condemnation, turkey. Knucklehead. I love you. I've come to die for you. You are judgment proof. Doesn't mean there aren't judgments made in the church. That's a whole nother sermon. We have accountability in the church, but it's not this kind of judgment. It's corrective, it's restorative, it's bring us back to Jesus, accountability. And it goes right in line with the last thing that Jesus says. Bro, live in light of this. Go and sin no more. It doesn't mean she's going to be perfect and never have sin. But live in the fuel and the love and the power of God's forgiveness and declaration and pronouncement over you. Knucklehead, forgiven. Why are we so defensive? We'll either get our spouse in on it and we'll tag team our defensiveness. We'll create little families to build up on it. God says, no. The power of the gospel frees you to live as those who are at the same time sinners and simultaneously justified saints before the Lord. Go and sin no more. Let's pray. God, we come to a table that reminds us we are loved by you. We are not rehashing in the sense of retrying Jesus. Jesus is not being punished in our presence. He is not re-dying for our sin. His sacrifice was once for all. Lord, we are participating in Christ in a way that you feed and nourish our souls by helping us who forget your grace to remember that we are free from condemnation and we dwell in a body of believers as a people who together remind and encourage one another of those truths of the gospel May you come, O oh Lord, even this morning as we come to your table. Would you come and meet with us again? In Christ's name, amen.